The sermon text reading is taken from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion then sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Am I on? I'm on. Excellent. Well, good morning, City Church. Good to see you all here on this Father's Day, Juneteenth. Um, it is an interesting conflux of days. It's Father's Day. It's uh, also the beginning, or I would say the end of the beginning of this experiment in freedom that is the United States. Um, so as I've been meditating on this particular passage, I've been thinking through these ideas of freedom and fatherhood, uh, authority and faith, and what is it, how do these all come together? And I think in this passage here, uh, where Jesus is meeting this faith that he marvels at, uh, we're going to see some interesting themes tying together these ideas of freedom, faith, fatherhood, um, and how they can all come together in this person of Jesus. Um, the reason we have this Juneteenth holiday is that on June 19, 1865, uh, General Granger of uh, the Union Army issued General Order Number 3 to the people of Texas. Uh, Texas was the last state of the Confederacy that had institutional slavery. It reads thus, The people of Texas are informed that, in accordance with a proclamation from the Executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. Uh, what we see is this general taking the words of Abraham Lincoln from the Emancipation Proclamation of January 1863 and reminding the people of Texas of the authority of the president. And saying the authority of the president has declared that you, people of Texas who are enslaved, are now free. And as a general under the command of the commander-in-chief, the president, I am proclaiming to you 
and we, the army, are enforcing that. So historical context for where we are, um, this proclamation of freedom announced what was actually true. Okay. Um, as we come to our passage, there's that little tiny connection of a soldier, uh, a, a commanding officer, as it were, that we'll come to in a minute. Um, we are situated in Capernaum. Uh, in the previous chapter of Luke, Jesus had just gone onto the mountain to pray. He had selected the 12 who would be his disciples, and he preached a sermon and healed out in the wilderness by the mountain. He's been teaching, he's been healing, and now he's coming into the city of Capernaum after that with his disciples and the crowds following him. Uh, Capernaum was on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it was, <laughs> if there was a bright corner to Israel, it was not Capernaum, <laughs> right? It was far away from Jerusalem. It, it was up in Galilee, up in the north. Uh, there was a lake and a bunch of land between the city and Jerusalem. So where the people would go to worship at the temple, they were not in proximity to that. Um, in most of these small Jewish towns, you would have a synagogue, a place where people could gather and hear uh, the word read. Uh, that synagogue will actually see again here, but this synagogue Jesus has actually preached at before. Uh, in Luke 4, he goes into Capernaum and he is teaching in the synagogue and he casts a demon on a man who questions Jesus' authority. He says, who are you? And Jesus commands the demon to come out of him and he leaves and the people marvel at Jesus. Um, so Capernaum was sort of the base of operations for his northern ministry. This was the place where uh, Peter's mother-in-law lived. Uh, Peter, remember, James and John and Andrew were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. So this whole series of towns would have all been connected together. Uh, so Capernaum now is where we are. So Jesus is just coming into this little village of Capernaum. And I want to look at um, three different encounters here as we move through. So the first is the Jewish elders encountering Jesus. The second is going to be the Roman centurion encountering Jesus. And the third is going to be Jesus encountering a faith that is marvelous to him. And what we see is that there's some unexpected twists in here. Uh, this particular passage is one that I have read and reread uh, and wrestled with for many, many, many years. Uh, and I'll get into that a little more as we go on. Uh, but let's start with the elders who are meeting with Jesus. Uh, as the text says, after he had finished all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they, the elders of the Jews, came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he's the one who built our synagogue. So we, get, we see a little bit of a, an inversion here. The elders of the Jews were the town fathers of Capernaum. This is like the city council, the municipal court, the judges who would judge what is good and right when people had disputes. They would come to the, the town fathers, the elders of the Jews. And the Jews are coming to Jesus at the request of a centurion. Now, the Roman centurions, they, the Romans were occupying Israel. <clears throat> they could give whatever orders they wanted, and people had to follow him, follow those orders. Um, <clears throat> but when the 
when the centurion sends them, there's a sense in which he is not commanding them, but asking them. He's entreating with them to go to this Jesus. And these elders of the Jews, instead of bristling under the authority of the Roman oppressors, actually willingly go at the request of the centurion. And they go to Jesus and they ask him, would you heal this man's servant? Now, what's surprising about that is that, one, they respected his authority because they respected him as a person, right? The centurion was somebody who loved their nation. He was the one who built the synagogue that Jesus had preached in back in Luke chapter 4, funding it out of his own money, right? So for a centurion to come in and be occupying Israel, occupying this small fishing village of Capernaum, to say, you know what, I love these people. I'm going to go native. I'm going to build their synagogue for them. I'm going to be part of this people. There is a, a, a sense in which the centurion is losing some of his Roman identity in order to take on the identity of the people who he is ostensibly supposed to be serving. Right? He is supposed to be over there governing this, but he ends up serving them instead. Um, and the elders notice that. They notice that in him. They notice that character in him. And they come to Jesus and say, would you heal this man's servant? Now, they plead with Jesus, right? And that word plead, you know, it sounds like kind of like a really nice, nice ask, right? Oh, would you please come in here? And there is something to that, but there is a sense of them earnestly desiring that Jesus will come do this. He is worthy, they say. Which, imagine a Jewish council, the Jewish elders, the town fathers, saying, this Gentile is worthy of you, Jesus, to come heal him. It was unheard of for the Jewish people to say that. And yet, we have not only Jewish people, but the elders of the Jews saying to Jesus, this Roman centurion, this Gentile, is worthy to have you heal his servant. Come with us, we pray. So the elders knew that Jesus could work miracles. He'd already done it in their village. They knew that he could heal. He'd been doing it out in the wilderness. So this wasn't something that they were like, well, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. They knew he had that power. And they brought on, on behalf of this centurion, this request for them, for Jesus to come and heal the centurion servant. Right? So these fathers of the city saw something almost fatherly in the centurion who sent them. He was using his authority for their good. He was protecting them. He was providing for them. And he was requesting of them something not for himself, but for his servant. Right? One of the lowest of the low. Not even one of his soldiers who had to take orders, but a servant. His bond servant. His slave, in other words. Um, I want good things for this person that is working for me. Uh, and they recognized that, and they brought that request to Jesus with earnestness. That's the elders, right? Unexpected that we would see a group of Jewish people bringing a request on behalf of this Gentile centurion. But let's take a look at the centurion himself. Um, he was an officer in the Roman army, 
centurions. He probably was not a very high-ranking centurion since he was stationed in Capernaum, not exactly the center of glory in the Roman Empire, but he would have had a command of about 80 soldiers under him. Uh, It was about the equivalent of a captain in the U.S. Army. Uh, So he had a rank. He had soldiers who had to do what he said. Um, As a centurion, he would have been able to read, so he was literate. He would have been commended by the people uh, above him, by the generals, uh, even by Caesar, for either a conspicuous act of bravery or some other work that would have set him apart from the common soldier. Uh, So he would have come recommended. He would have had character and virtue. Uh, And Roman virtue uh, would be, you know, being somebody who was courageous, who was just, uh, who was wise in his dealings. Uh, He would have had these characteristics and qualities uh, just by nature of having this office of centurion. Uh, And some centurions could very gladly extort money from their soldiers oh, you don't want latrine duty today. (laughs) I'll go ahead and take a little bit of your salary so that you don't have to work digging latrines, Uh, right? And some of them were like that. Presumably, this centurion was not like that, right? He had the authority, but he also had uh, the willingness to love and serve the people that were with him. Um, Because he was a centurion, he would have been much more virtuous than the ordinary soldiers that were serving in the army. Uh, In the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist is baptizing, we see some soldiers come to him and ask, what what must I do to be saved? Uh, Like, what do we have to do? Right? All the sinners and tax collectors and soldiers are coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. And he says, well, don't extort money from people. Don't Don't take advantage of the people that you're supposed to be here serving and protecting, in other words. Uh, So the the thinking there is that that was kind of a common practice among the soldiers. Extortion, forcing somebody to carry your goods a mile, where Jesus said, go the extra mile. Uh, These were considered normal practices, and we see no evidence that this centurion, or even the soldiers under him, would have been practicing this. Right, Because if his soldiers were unruly, would the town fathers have been likely to say of this centurion, he is worthy? Well, no, he can't even keep his soldiers in control. No, this guy could keep his soldiers in control. He could serve the people of Capernaum. He could love the people that he was with and love the nation. But the centurion was also very humble, uh, strangely so. Uh, in our next section... We see that, um, you know, as Jesus is going into the city, this centurion sends friends to Jesus. So he's already sent the elders, saying, hey, can you go ask Jesus to heal my servant? And the elders are like, yes, we will. And then as he's thinking about it more and more, he sends some friends to go meet with Jesus and say, you know what? I don't even, I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. I am not worthy. So this is a centurion. This is an officer in the Roman army, right? Somebody who has earned glory in battle, who has courage, who has wisdom, who has uh, a status in the Roman Empire. And he's saying, 
to this rabbi, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Right? That exhibits this incredible humility in the centurion. Right? He's not giving a command to Jesus, come heal this guy. He's saying, you know what? I'm not even worthy to have you come into my house. I'm just a Gentile occupying your country, but say the word and he'll be healed. Just say the word. Right? Which we see Jesus doing that, saying things to people as he is laying his hands on them and healing them. But there is an extra level here of just say the word. There's a recognition of something that uh, is highlighted in his words. Uh, the centurion, uh, you can put that next one up. Okay, yeah. Um, say the word and let my servant be healed. Let's go ahead to the next one. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. He's acknowledging in this particular exchange with Jesus that he can give a word and make things happen. He can make soldiers go from one place to another, carry something from here to there, set up a fortification, dig a trench, whatever it is, he can say the word and it will happen. And he acknowledges that because he is under authority, he can do this. And he says that, Jesus, you can say a word and heal. And what's astounded me is that little word too in verse 8. For I too am a man set under authority. There's something that this centurion is recognizing in Jesus that he, Jesus, is under authority. And him being under authority is what gives him the power to say the word and heal. Uh, the psalm that was read earlier, verse 20 says, he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. We see God sending out a word to heal. There's, it, it seems like an acknowledgement from the centurion that Jesus is under the authority of the Lord and can speak a word to heal. So there's our parties. We've got the Jewish elders. We've got the centurion. We've got this sick servant who's waiting to be healed. And then Jesus is encountering both of them. Um, so Jesus had taught in this synagogue back in Luke 4. Uh, they were astonished at his teaching when he taught. Um, and astonished, it's a word that means kind of like dumbstruck, turned to stone. Um, they were just struck by his teaching because he taught as one who possessed authority. Now, this is where Jesus encounters uh, this marvelous faith. Uh, when Jesus heard things that the centurions, not even the centurion himself, the centurion's friends were saying to him, he turned to the crowd that followed him. This would have been his disciples, the Jewish elders, the people of Capernaum and the surrounding cities that he had been healing and teaching. So he turns to them and marvels and says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Now, to the people that were following him, that must have 
kind of hurt. Right? After all, they were the ones that were coming to him to be healed in the first place. They, they were the ones who were coming to him to be taught. And for Jesus to turn around and say, this Roman centurion here, I haven't seen faith like this even in Israel. That had to sit pretty hard with the crowds that were following him. And yet, what is it that Jesus is recognizing in this centurion? Right? He's recognizing his humility. He's recognizing that this centurion acknowledges Jesus being under the authority of the Father. Right? Something that the Jews marveled at, that he taught as one who had authority, not as one of their scribes. But the centurion is acknowledging that with his request. You don't even need to come to my house to touch him or anything. You just need to say the word and my servant will be healed. Right? That speaks to a faith that says, no, 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 Jesus, your authority is higher than my authority. Your authority is such that you can speak a word and this sick man who's at the point of death can be raised, can be healed, can be restored. That's the faith that Jesus is commending. And he marvels at him. So this word that's used for marvel uh, is only used twice in the scriptures as something that Jesus does. One of them is in this particular account. Uh, in Luke 7 and the parallel account in Matthew 8. Jesus is marveling at the faith of the centurion, this Gentile, um, this servant of Rome who exhibits this great faith. He marvels at it. The only other time Jesus marvels at something is in Mark 6 where he's marveling at the unbelief of the people of his own hometown. He's teaching and healing in Nazareth, and he marvels at the unbelief of the people. Jesus marvels twice as recorded in Scripture. Once with the faith of a Gentile, once at the unbelief of his own people, even the people of his own hometown. Most of the time that word is used in connotation with things that Jesus is saying or doing. The marveling is done to Jesus not the other way around. But here is something that is marvelous to Jesus. Jesus marvels at this guy's faith. And something that has stuck with me is, how do I have the type of faith that Jesus will marvel at? Right? So we see these encounters, the Jewish people, the centurion, and Jesus then encountering the faith what does that mean for us? As we are seeing and savoring and showing Jesus, how do we encounter him in this text? Uh, one of the reasons that I have wrestled uh, with this text so much is that I am a, a stereotypical Gen Xer, right? Kind of cynical, a little bit anti-authoritarian, grew up in the Cold War when all the authorities are trying to blow up the world, right? So it's always something that I've struggled with both carrying in myself and being under. It's always something that's made me bristle. And this passage is the Lord's way of speaking to me, of saying, no, 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 you are going to be under authority. Whose authority are you going to be under? Are you going to be under your own, or are you going to be under mine? Jesus 
Gen Xers are described as um, savvy, skeptical, self-reliant. They're not into preening or pampering. They just might not give much of a hoot what others think of them or whether others think of them at all. Um, that, that right there is why this resonates, why this strikes me, right? Because God is saying here in this passage that, no, 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 if you want to have authority, you need to be under authority. Roman centurion has authority because he is under authority. That's why he can tell people what they should do. Jesus has authority because he is under the authority of the Father. We rightly exercise authority only when we're under God's authority. That's the only way we can. Any casual observation of history will show us how much authority can be abused, misused, misdirected, and misguided. Um, In 1877, uh, the British historian Lord Acton, famous for the power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely line, uh, wrote this in a a commentary on freedom in the ancient world, freedom in the modern world. Uh, He said that Stoics could only advise the wise man to hold aloof from politics, keeping the unwritten law in his heart. But when Christ said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's, those words, spoken on his last visit to the temple, three days before his death, gave the civil power under the protection of conscience a sacredness it had never enjoyed and bounds it had never acknowledged. And they were the repudiation of absolutism and the inauguration of freedom. Because Jesus was under the authority of his father, because he was in submission to his father's will, not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. Jesus recognized that earthly authority has limits, right? Even though Pontius Pilate could sentence him to death, that was not the last word even though the Sanhedrin could hand him over to Pontius Pilate, that was not the last word. Because he was under the authority of the Father, who had the ultimate authority. The Father's authority superseded Caesar's authority. Caesar's authority was granted by the Father. You would have no power unless it was given to you by my Father above, Jesus told Pilate. Right? Jesus recognizes the ultimate height of his Father's authority which is why he can confidently move even into suffering and death. Not even crucifixion could put an end to Jesus' work. Right? He stewarded the authority that was given to him by his father, the authority that this centurion recognized, and because he stewarded it, he was able to inaugurate the redemption of creation. I'll leave us with this. Uh, It would not be me talking if I did not in some way reference the Lord of the Rings. Um, So I am going to go off book and actually reference the book instead of the movie. I do like the movies, but the book is always better. Uh, In Return of the King, there is a scene um, when Gandalf comes to Gondor where he goes before Denethor, who is the steward of Gondor. 
So this kingdom of Gondor had not had a king for generations and generations. And Denethor was the last of this line of stewards who were stewarding the kingdom for the king who had come. And they had eventually become the de facto rulers of the nation. They were effectively kings. They didn't sit on the throne, but they ruled and behaved as if they were kings. Um, as Gandalf and Denethor speak, Denethor becomes concerned that Gandalf is going to want to seize the power of Gondor to use for his own ends. Um, and Denethor confirms to him that he's like, no, 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 I'm going to hold this against any of your machinations, anything you're trying to accomplish. I'm going to hold this for the king if he should ever come, which he honestly doubted. He doubted that a king would return. Uh, and we'll pick up uh, Gandalf uh, replies to Denethor and says, uh, unless the king should come again, said Gandalf, well, my lord steward, it is your task to keep some kingdom still against that event, which few now look to seize. In that task, you shall have all the aid that you are pleased to ask for. But I will say this, the rule of no realm is mine, neither of Gondor nor any other, great or small. But all worthy things that are in peril as the world now stands, those are my care. And for my part, I shall not wholly fail of my task, though Gondor should perish, if anything passes through this night that can still grow fair or bear fruit and flower again in days to come. For I also am a steward. Did you not know? Friends, we all are stewards. We're stewards because we are all under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are under his authority, that's what gives us the authority to announce flourishing and freedom to his creation. Fathers, we especially are stewards of our families under the authority from God the Father from whom all families are named. Only as we're submitting to his authority can we bring flourishing and freedom to our earthly families. Jesus, submitting to his Father's authority, brought himself into submission to the earthly authorities of the Sanhedrin and of Pontius Pilate to the point of death. But because he's Lord, not even death could conquer him. And because he rose, it means that he is now Lord of all. Not only Lord of life, but Lord of death. He has defeated it. The defeated enemy is now subject to the one who has conquered it. At the end of Matthew, after Jesus has risen, he gives some final words to his disciples. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Friends, he has all the authority. There's nothing that is outside of his authority. Everything in this world is under his lordship, his kingship, his rule. And because of that, we can serve under his authority. We can serve with gladness, with sacrifices of thanksgiving. Right? The psalm said at the end, let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Sacrifices always cost something. And friends, being a steward is costly. But we can 
bear the cost with thanksgiving because he is Lord of all. As we do that, as we serve, let us serve under his authority to bring about the flourishing and freedom that this good news brings to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord Jesus, that you are the Lord of heaven and earth and all authority has been given to you. Lord, thank you through your Holy Spirit that you are with us even now, even to the end of the age. Be with us as we serve and continue to worship. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.